Hey guys, I had a slight moment of panic just a moment ago. My wife is less than two weeks away, Miranda's less than two weeks away from the, uh, the due date. And I realized that she wasn't here and I'd left my phone in my office. <laughs> so I sent Joy to get my phone and then my wife came in, so I was pleased. Be praying for us. Two weeks away, less than two weeks away. I want to open tonight with a confession that's pretty stark and urgent. And that is that apart from Jesus and the gospel, I am not alive. And the same is true for you. Apart from Jesus and apart from his gospel, you're not truly alive. Genesis chapter 2 talks about how life came about for us. Talks about how Adam was dust. God takes this dust, breathes into Adam the breath of life. And then, then man became a living creature. Now, the word for breath is the word in Hebrew for spirit. So, God breathes his breath and then we become a living creature. Let's find fix this here. I don't know if this will work, but we'll see. You don't want to hear me breathing all over this microphone. So, is this okay, Grant? William, thank you. Okay, so to be a a living creature, a a human that is truly alive, means that we're animated by the life-giving force and presence of God's Spirit. But this, this liveliness was lost to us when Adam sinned. Right? Adam disobeyed his creator, God King, and his sin rips this, it ripped this, this violent gash into the, the, the beautiful fabric of the created order, ripped this ugly open hole inside creation through which sin entered and marred and mangled up everything and made us subhuman. Distancing us from from God. But then one day, centuries later, the resurrected Christ does something really odd with his disciples. He's standing before his disciples and he blows on them. In John 20, 22, we read that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. This is echoing what took place in Genesis 2. Just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam, just as the breath of God came into the dry, brittle bones of Ezekiel's vision, Jesus breathes the animating, life-giving presence of His Spirit into us that once again, we might be living creatures and our death status, our subhumanness is reversed and redeemed by Jesus. And the gospel is the proclamation that he has come out against death and is on death's heels. Apart from Jesus and the gospel, you and I are not alive. You might be breathing and your heart might be pumping. You might be biologically functioning, but you're not. Alive. Of all that is demanding your attention right now, of all that's occupying your, your time, that's demanding your energy, 
apart from Jesus and the gospel, it has no lasting worth whatsoever. We've just started this, this new series, Jesus and the Gospel, according to Paul. And in my studies, just over the past 24 hours, I've just, God has given me a fresh sense of urgency about the gospel and what it means, what it beckons us into. And I, I want to, to share with you this sense of urgency. But it's hard to be excited about something you don't really understand. It's hard to, be, to feel urgent about someone you don't really get. So... What we're going to be doing as we study Jesus and the gospel according to Paul is looking at concepts and words and phrases that we say all the time in the Christian church, but we may not actually understand. So, here we go. Jesus and the gospel according to Paul. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, we're gathered here in the presence of one another and most importantly, in the presence of you, the one true great king. We've also placed ourselves now before your scriptures. And so now, as we place ourselves in this position before you, before one another, and before your words... We ask for something marvelous. We ask, Lord, that we would know with fresh new excitement and joy who you are and the message that announces your reign. Spirit of God, I am helpless apart from you. Please come and teach through me and open our ears to hear what we most need to hear. I pray this in the name of the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 1. You, you guys have heard me say a handful of times now that that we exist as a ministry to present to you a God of biblical proportions. We want to present the Bible's vision of our great God. And so we, we also want to equip you to get into the Bible so that for the rest of your lives, when you're long gone from a college campus setting, you can encounter this great and glorious God. And I, I, should, probably, I should probably craft those sentences and phrases into a real catchy and succinct mission statement because you know you're supposed to have those things we actually do have one uh ucf uh, but i could recraft it maybe we could come up with a new mission statement a purpose statement you're supposed to have that kind of thing but paul i don't think he operated with a mission statement you know that was on his business card or uh, some kind of really catchy purpose statement he could quote quickly to the christians at rome i think what he operated out of more than a purpose statement was a story that gave them purpose, a grand, huge story that shaped and gave meaning to everything that he did. Words and phrases will evoke stories. For instance, what if I say drive shaft? What comes to your mind? Lost, right? 
And not just the TV show Lost, but the whole story. You think of the whole story, the whole long, mind-boggling, ridiculous sometimes saga of all that this TV show entails when I say drive shaft. If I could remember the little musical lyric, I thought about doing that for you, but... Oh, thanks. That's all you got to do, and you got it. <laughs> Leave it to Sarah and my wife to figure that one out. What, what if I say, who dat? Right. And, and I'm not trying to promote a particular team. You guys know when you're at the Super Bowl, I cheer for uh, you know, the other team, for the Colts. But when you, when you hear that phrase, it brings to mind, it conjures in your mind a story. The story of this amazing season the New Orleans Saints had in light of the very difficult past. In recent history with Hurricane Katrina and all the mess that they've had to go through. Who that brings about this story. We're going to read seven verses tonight. The, the opening greeting of Paul's letter to Rome. We're going to open these seven verses. And our, our, our approach is to think of the grand stories that would have come to mind. With particular terms and phrases used by Paul. And what we're going to find is that in the minds of these first century believers are are really two powerful, overarching narratives. Okay, one is the salvation history of God, the salvation history of God who has sent Jesus to bring about the climax of the great story with Israel. This is the story told by the Old Testament. This would have been one of the grand overarching narratives in the minds of the first century Christians. The other grand narrative is the legacy of Rome and Caesar, who has come to supposedly bring peace and salvation to the world. These grand narratives are the backstories for a number of key terms that we use every day as Christians, but without an awareness of those backstories. So we're going to read now together. And I want to ask that you stand with me just to signify a posture of I'm ready to hear what you have to say to me. So, here we are. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Look again at the opening line here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. And this is the story we looked at last week, right? In Acts chapter nine, the scene on the Damascus road. But there's been a name change since Acts chapter nine. Saul of Tarsus is now Paul the Apostle. Saul was a very Jewish name. And of course, Paul was Jewish through and through. But we know him not by his Jewish name, but by Paulos, a Greco-Roman name. 
even his name, his very identity, has been adapted and modified by his calling to serve Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This brings us now to the first term we're going to look at. The first term that we use often but may understand little, gospel. This is one we should know, right? We've been working through this a bit in our Sunday mornings here at church. Let's say you're on this mission trip to Northern Ireland and Connie says to you, hey, go over there and share the gospel with those kids. What are you going to say to them? What is the gospel? And I think many of us, what we think of when we think of gospel is, one, people are sinful. Two, God is holy. Three, the barrier of sin between us is removed by Jesus' death. Four, if you believe in Jesus, you have a personal relationship with him and you'll go to heaven one day. Is this what Jesus was saying? When the gospel of Mark says he went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Is this what Paul means when he speaks of the gospel of God here in Romans 1? Is this it? When we begin to think about the backstories, when we consider the grand narrative of God's work redeeming Israel and the Greco-Roman story of Caesar and the empire, I think we begin to see a much bigger picture of what gospel means. To understand the gospel, you guys have to do a little imaginative exercise a bit with me. Don't you get nervous when people say that? Uh, You've got to try to place yourselves right now in a crisis situation, okay? Like on the edge of your seat, desperate for news about the situation. It's dire. Everything is hanging in the balance for you. Everything you know, everything you've ever known is now at stake suddenly. And you're shaking with anxiety for news and update for results. You're bursting apart to find out the outcome of the situation. You know that moment when these Olympic athletes are, are right in front of the camera. I mean, they've just skied or skated their hearts out, right? And they're, and they're, waiting, they're looking at that screen where the results the, of the judges' scores will soon be posted. This is that crisis-type moment. The moment when you've just asked her, capital H-E-R, on a date and disaster or bliss is immediately upon you. She's about to open her mouth. That kind of crisis situation. Take it and intensify it exponentially. To the point where it might look something like this. You've been ripped out of your homeland. This is not your home. No longer. You've been ripped out of this homeland. You're a refugee in a strange land with a strange language, with strange customs, and they don't worship your God. You've even seen your God's temple burning and disintegrating right in front of your eyes. You've heard that your king had his eyes gouged out by some other king. You're living in this crisis situation, exiled in a strange 
land, wondering if your nation is no more, wondering if your God has forgotten you. And the pain and the angst of this exile is so severe that you've strained your ears to the point of their bursting just to get some good word from somewhere. Place yourselves in this kind of situation. The position of a Jewish exile in the 6th century B.C. And then you see a runner coming towards you. As if from a decisive battle. A decisive battle that will determine whether you live or you die. And whether your God is real and true or if he's a phony. And here he comes, this, this runner. He's coming towards you. You're wringing your hands. You can't sit. You can't stand you can hardly breathe you're so desperate to know the outcome of what's going to come out of his lips what has happened from this decisive battle and then gasping to catch his breath he, he collapses in exhaustion before your feet this runner from the battlefield and then he manages he manages to blurt out your god reigns this is the good news When Paul says gospel, these two major narratives that we're talking about, these two grand stories, would have come to mind of these Romans, these Roman Christians. And the first one, the first grand story would have been the story of God's salvation history for the Jewish people. This would have been the first story to come to mind because the word gospel comes out of Isaiah 40 through 66. There's a verb there. Euangelizomai. I like saying that. Euangelizomai. Uh, it means proclaim good news. It has a noun form and a participial phrase. All right, The one who proclaims good news. This section, Isaiah 40 through 66, this is the place in the Old Testament where God is making the announcement to His exiled people that He is still their King and that He is going to come and bring His kingdom in which all things wrong will be made. Right. In Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of... Something's about to happen. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> you want try another mic? I, I, I might not need a mic. Oh, it's not me. Right in the middle of Isaiah 40, verse 9. Let me try that again. <laughs> Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, here's the message, behold your God. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful. Are the feet of him who brings good news. How lovely are the feet of that messenger running from the battle. To say. To bring good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion. Your God reigns. This would have been one of the grand stories coming to mind. The first one. For these Jews. When Paul says right there. Gospel of God. The second grand story. That would have come to their minds. With the term gospel was the story of Rome. In the Greco-Roman world, gospel 
was the proclamation that the emperor is having a birthday. Or that a new emperor has been born. Or that the new emperor has now acceded to the throne. Or that the emperor has just won a battle. Gospel. The good news of the kingdom of Caesar. But only one of these grand stories is the true story. Paul does not preach the gospel of Caesar, does he? He preaches the gospel of God. That which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this term gospel is a royal pronouncement. A royal pronouncement that the reign of God is coming in a fresh new way. Now we move to the next term. Christ. We say this a lot. Christ. And I think many of us have, have come to, to view Christ as simply Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. Andy Byers. Gosh, the two are not worthy to be said in the same sentence. So, Jesus Christ. Uh, th- this isn't exactly the last name of Jesus. It came to be recognized as part of his name. But though Paul says Jesus Christ, twice in our passage, it opens with Christ Jesus. There in verse 1, do you see that? Christ Jesus, which reminds us that Christ is not just a name, it's a title. It's a royal title. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. And both Messiah and Christ come from, well, they could just be literally translated The anointed one. Kings would be anointed with oil to signify their appointment to the kingship. If you look at verse 3, we read that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So what does that mean? Why the family tree? Why is Jesus called son of David in the Gospels? Well, the Christ, the Messiah to emerge out of the ashes of David's dynasty. The Messiah, the Christ, will be David's heir. The heir of his throne. Christ is a royal title referring to the Messiah King who would restore God's people. And in in this grand story of the Old Testament that would have come to mind here, in this Jewish story of God's redemption of His people, that the idea of a messianic heir, it had become to be the stuff that legends are made of. Okay? What comes to your mind when I say, Isildur's heir? Yes. <laughs> In Tolkien's Middle Earth, the royal line of the great kings of the West had disappeared into obscurity, hadn't it? There had been this cataclysmic battle with Sauron, and Isildur and his line suddenly became no more. They were roaming the wild as rangers. But there were prophecies. There were rumors. Rumors about an heir to Gondor. Isildur's heir who would one day reforge a broken sword and unite the peoples of Middle-earth together in this apocalyptic crisis that would await. 
after the last Davidic king was dethroned, this was around 587 B.C., David's line still continued throughout the centuries. People kept up. They were of the house of David. Throughout the time between the Testaments, people who were of the household of David were persecuted by different military leaders because they knew that was an important class of people. And out of that group of people, they have rumors about a king that will come. Messiah. Christ. That's what it means for Paul to reference Jesus as descended from David. It means that he is Christ. We also see in verse 4 that Jesus is not only David's son, he's someone else's son. He is son of God. This is also a messianic title. We see this all the time in the gospel. Son of David, son of God. This is a messianic title because during the days of Israel's monarchy, when David's heir was made king, he was thereby adopted as God's own son. Son of God would have referred to the Davidic. Well, in the other story, the story of Rome and its empire, the term Christ, the anointed one, was also regarded as a king. There's only there was only one of those in the empire. Empires have only one emperors. And only Caesar. Only Caesar was the king, the emperor of that kingdom. You remember that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross with the charge king of the Jews over his crown of thorns. The the fastest growing religion in Paul's day was the imperial cult, the cult of the emperor. What would happen is that when an emperor died, he would be proclaimed a god so that the new emperor would always be referred to as son of a god. And sometimes also Soter, Savior, Savior of the world. So again, we're finding these two grand narratives that would have come to mind immediately with these phrases and terms. They're in conflict with one another. The gospel pronounces the coming of God's reign in a fresh new way. And Jesus is presented with two royal titles here. David's heir and the son of God. So the kingdom is coming and Jesus is its king. There's one final term I want us to consider. This is the term Lord. If you read Romans carefully, you you might notice that Paul uses two contrasting phrases from time to time. According to the flesh versus according to the spirit. That which is of the flesh, it's inferior to that which is of the the spirit. We've just read the first instance of this contrast in Romans. According to the flesh, in verse 3, Jesus is David's heir. But according to the spirit, the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. This is in verse 4. Jesus is something much, much more. Than just Christ or Messiah. Jesus did not just emerge out of the ashes of David's line. Jesus emerged out of the darkness of death's tomb. He is more than just Christ. According to the spirit of holiness in verse 4. By resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our 
Lord. Not just Christ, but Jesus Christ who is Lord. Our passage that we've read ends in verse 7 with this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word here is kurios. This was a title for Caesar. The supreme political slogan of the day was Caesar is kurios. Caesar is Lord. I remember back during the, the, the most recent presidential election, I remember seeing this uh, bumper sticker that just had a man's face on it beneath which was hope. Did you see that? I was offended. <sighs> that kind of political language, it also stepped into religious bounds. That it was all over the place in the Greco-Roman world. Caesar as Lord, as Savior. But the other grand story, and the other grand story in the narrative of God's salvation history with Israel, Curios referred to someone else. The Greek version of the Bible that first century Christians read. In that, that Greek version of the Bible, we call it the Septuagint, in that Bible that they would have studied and read, the word Curios was used to translate Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so the Christian slogan of Paul's day became Jesus is Curios. Jesus is Lord. Now is when we realize that the grand story of the Roman Empire and all of its glory is just a farce. can even fade away from the picture a bit because the one true Lord of the cosmos, the royal, reigning, divine, holy king had no interest whatsoever in the throne of Caesar in Rome. Jesus Christ, our Lord, did not march up gilded steps to take another mortal's throne. He marched up Gotha to a wooden post to unseat the power of death. This was the only worthy of the confrontation Jesus Christ our Lord came to bring. Death. That death that Adam's sin had escorted right into our bones, into the soil that we stand on, into the air that we're breathing. This is the reign, the reign of death that Jesus Christ our Lord came to confront, to defang, to hurl to the ground in disgust. The grand narrative of Rome's empire can just fade away because its story is just a myth and its Caesar is nothing but a weak, arrogant mortal and God, so to speak, had bigger fish to fry than Caesar. So from our text tonight, we see that the gospel is the royal pronouncement that the reign of God is underway through Jesus who not only fulfills Israel's hopes as Messiah, but who is destroying sin and death as the world's true Lord. And all this we get from four verses. The first four verses of the epistle to the Romans. 
And there's actually a lot more, a lot more behind the scenes than just what we've discussed. In my readings for tonight, I came across this quote from a scholar. His name's N.T. Wright. The gospel was a command requiring obedience, much more than an invitation seeking a response. The gospel was a command requiring obedience, much more than an invitation seeking a response. Paul speaks of his mission to the God, his mission in the gospel to bring about the obedience of faith. In his mission to the gospel, he is bringing about obedience. Three times in the passage, verses one through seven, here is the word "called." Paul is called into the service of the gospel. The Roman Christians are called of Jesus Christ to belong to Him, called to be saints. The gospel calls it summons it lays claim on our lives if a messenger appears on the city streets royal insignia on his robes and then after hear ye hear ye this messenger announces that messiah jesus is now your king and lord then a claim has been laid on you and on me we are thereby summoned into Allegiance. All other allegiances have to be forsaken. Whoever was the king before, forget it. All allegiances have to be forsaken. Anything else that lays claim on your life must be rejected. Anything that will assert lordship over you, anything to which you submit has to be rejected. Because the announcement of the gospel is that there is one Lord. Jesus Christ, the Messiah King. He will tolerate no competitors and no rivals. And not only does the gospel summon us, but its very proclamation has power to alter us forever. A little bit later, down in verse 16. Paul writes that the gospel, this royal pronouncement, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message itself affects, it effects, it alters, it reshapes us around the royal, divine, forever kingship of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who breathes into us new life. Apart from Jesus, apart from his gospel, you are not alive. But in submission to the gospel's announcement. By its beautiful power to alter. Then you and I are made sons and made daughters of the king. One last word. Paul says to the Roman Christians that they are beloved of God. They're loved by God. I'm not sure if any of these Christians living in Rome would have personally believed that they were beloved by Caesar. Maybe the most moving part of the gospel is that the king who lays such claim on you has scandalously permitted himself 
to die naked and nailed to a cross on your behalf. This is the kind of king that has laid claim on you and on me. His defeat of death, the resurrection from the dead, demonstrates that although he looked like just some other mortal with aspirations to Romans, to the Roman throne, that resurrection of the dead proclaimed that he is not only the Lord of all, even death and sin, but he loves you enough to give everything he's got and hold nothing back to make you his child, his servant. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you give us grace to believe in the power that your servant Paul has claimed the gospel itself to be. And we're catching it, Lord. We're we're hearing it proclaimed tonight through the scripture. And we're asking that it will affect us, effect a change in us, that it would alter us. Jesus, I ask of you to shine your burning and bright light right into us, right into my mind, Lord, in its darkest corners, into my heart. We want to ask that you would shine that burning and bright light and expose that which has resisted your Lordship. We want to corporately confess, Lord, that you're strong enough to come out of the grave. You're strong enough to take away our addictions tonight. You're strong enough to uh, you're strong enough to burst out of the tomb. You're strong enough to burst us out of our bonds. So by the power of your gospel, Lord, and by the strength of your spirit and the supernatural capacity to work and to remove and to reshape, we ask that you would bring healing and restoration tonight in this chapel. And cause us to know the joy of being your subject in your kingdom. In your name, which is stronger than all others. Amen.